I am Brian Regeer. I am pastor of uh, Worldview and now Missions, since Brian Hill has come to uh, serve as our care pastor in part. And uh, I'm pleased to open God's Word with you this morning in Steve's absence. I'll explain that. Steve and Barb have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity this morning. Uh, They are over at New Covenant participating in the dedication of their very first grandchild. So we're delighted that they have the opportunity to do that and, and really happy for them. And uh, I'm pleased to be here with you this morning, and Steve will be back next week to carry on in our series. And rather than going in our own direction this morning, we're going to carry on in the very same series that Steve has been leading us through. We've been talking about God's attributes, particularly these attributes that we call his communicable attributes. And that simply means attributes that are are part of God's nature in which we share. Uh, For example, God's spirituality. We are likewise spiritual beings. Not that alone, but we have spirits as God is spirit. God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's truthfulness and faithfulness. In fact, he commands us to take on these attributes that are part of his, that are uh, part of his nature and that become ours as we are made increasingly in the image of Christ. We're turning a small corner this morning, however. We've been talking about God's uh, being. This morning we're going to begin talking about God's moral attributes, things like goodness, love, mercy, and holiness. And we are talking about goodness this morning, and to illustrate something about God's goodness, uh, I have brought in an illustration. This is an apple, as you know, but I bet you didn't know that this is a very special apple. This apple comes from Wilson's Orchard. Every year, our family makes a trip down to Solon. We go down Highway 1, because the scenery is better down that road, and we stop a little short of Iowa City, and we go to Wilson's Orchard. It's one of these you-pick places, and we always ride the tractor, and they take us out there into the groves, and then we spend a few minutes trying to keep the kids, trying to slow them down, because we've got these buckets, and they're kind of expensive, these apples, so we don't want to pick them all too soon. We fill these buckets up. We help the kids make choices. And then I do something really special. I go in search of the absolute perfect apple. I do this every year. I walk around, and when I have found it, I pick this apple. And I go off on my own a little bit, and I stand there under the sky, and I eat this apple all by myself. This is a special time for me. Uh, our favorite apples there are the Song of Septembers. Oh, a little bit tart, great for baking, but the best apples are the Honey Crisps. They're sweet and they're good for everything. Now, there's a couple of problems with a really good Wilson's apple. Uh, the first problem is that a good Wilson's apple makes every other apple that you eat the rest of the year taste brown and mushy. Nothing's worse than getting a a highly waxed, golden, delicious 
in January and you bite into this thing and all you can think about is that one Wilson's Orchard Honeycrisp apple that you had way back in September. So that's a problem. No fault of the apple, but it's a problem with the experience. The other problem is is that you have to experience this apple in order to understand it. I could stand up here for the rest of the hour and tell you all about this apple. But for you to really understand the apple, you'd have to come with me next year. And we would go out under the sky with our perfect apples, and we'd eat these apples, and we would experience them together. And then you'd understand something about what I'm talking about. Well, that's a pretty silly illustration, but it helps us understand a little bit better about what we mean in an ultimate sense when we talk about God's goodness. God's goodness is sufficient. It's unique. It's desirable. It must be experienced to be understood, and it's available through faith in Christ. And before we look at our passages, I'd like to talk a little bit about this word good. Our word good in the Bible, the Old Testament part, almost always translates the Hebrew word tov. And it's a word that survives into modern Hebrew. If you go to Israel today, you'll say boker tov, boker tov. It means good day. And in its original form, it referred to that which makes someone or something desirable, pleasing, practical, or serviceable. And as the word came to be used in the worldview of ancient Israel, it referred to something that was sufficient in itself for its own purposes. Maybe you could say it in a, in a digital age sort of way by saying that God in his goodness is fully synced to himself. Okay? He doesn't have to sync to anything else. He's sufficient. He, he doesn't need anybody else to, to do what he wants to do or fulfill his own purpose. As we come into the the Greek part of the Bible, and as the Old Testament was translated into Greek, uh, Greek is a much more flexible language than Hebrew. There's a lot of words that describe different variances in Greek. In fact, there are eight different words that can translate the word tov from the Hebrew. We get some of them in our in our Bible, uh, and the Greeks had. Added, uh, they had other concepts that they could express. They could, for example, talk about beauty of form and appearance. So, for example, a good woman might be a beautiful woman who is lovely in appearance. But almost always, when, when those who wrote the Bible out in Greek, almost always when they were talking about God, they conveyed this old Hebrew concept of sufficiency to himself, since this this attribute of God had already been revealed in the Old Testament. Now, when we come into English, something really interesting happens. We find that our word good actually comes from the older word for God. And you see this in the very early versions of the Bible in English. So, for example, you see uh, verses like, Every God and perfect gift 
cometh down from above, or every every God tree beareth God fruit. And we're familiar with this use of good, well, or God, uh, in our expression, Godspeed. You ever heard people say that? Godspeed, you're going away on a trip. Godspeed, what you mean is good speed. I hope your trip goes quickly and without trouble. Godspeed. So there is a connection, even in our language, a linguistic connection between the word good and the word God. That last part was just for the English majors among us. It's now safe for the rest of us to rejoin the group. All right. um, We have in our bulletin uh, a little insert. And we've listed five things that we need to talk about when we talk about God's goodness. And what I'm going to do is to read each one of them. And then I'm going to read a litany of verses uh, keep, up, keep up if you want to or try to. Probably better just to listen to the verses rather than flipping around or punching around to find them. We're going to camp at a couple of places, and then you're, you're free to, to go look for those verses. But uh, the first thing that we need to think about, we need to talk about, is number one on your little insert. Here it is. God's goodness is the source of good in the world and our standard for morality and ethics. God's goodness is the source of good in the world, and our standard for morality and ethics. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 100, verse 5, one among many such psalms, particularly in the psalms. Uh, in the psalms. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Moving to the New Testament, Luke 18, 18 and 19. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And as we think about how God is the source of good in the world and our standard for morality and ethics, we need to realize that God's decrees are expressions of his character and his nature and his attributes. God doesn't just tell us to do stuff because of some other purpose or some other thing that he's trying to accomplish. God never gives us a commandment without expressing his own nature. So, for example, uh, Exodus 20, the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods besides me. What is that showing us? Well, there's only one God. That command comes from the nature of gods. Can't have any other gods. There are no other gods. It's just simply true that there is only one God. Or take the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. 
This expresses the truth that God is a jealous God. Thus, you can't just add him him to your to your other to your well to your false gods. Right? The first is dependent. The first commandment is de- the second commandment is dependent on the first commandment. Or take the commandment: you shall not murder. Uh, this reminds us that man is made in God's image. He has a moral likeness to God and represents God. And when you kill your fellow man, you're saying something about what you think about his about his creator. Another thing we need to think about is that good is what God says is good. Because his commandments come from his nature, then when he says that something is good, it really is good. Uh, Norman Geisler, in his helpful little book, Christian Ethics, says this, The good is what God wills to be good. Whatever action God specifies is a good action is a good action. Conversely, if God wills an action to be evil, then it is evil. Thus, moral good is both ultimate and specifiable. It is ultimate because it comes from God, and it is specifiable since it can be found in his revelation to mankind. Now, when it comes time for us to make rules and laws, we likewise need to express what God approves. This is true whether it's in our families or in our church family or in our communities and ultimately in our nation. We need to agree with what God approves and our laws need to express that. We want to match God's character here. For example, we need laws that limit these check-cashing places that charge the poor outrageous fees. Now, I know that the fees offset the risk of cashing checks for people without banks, but in principle, we need to help the poor and not, and not keep them captive in their poverty. And our, our laws should, should express this value because that's important to God. We need laws that protect the unborn because they are the most vulnerable among us. And we know that that is a value that is important to God. We need laws that uphold God's design for gender and marriage and family. If we abandon God's revelation of himself, what's going to happen? Well, we're simply going to adopt some other standard. In our economy, probably the greatest relative good for the greatest number of people or simply the, the tyranny of the majority. Both avoid defining the good, and both ultimately result in raw power. And when that happens, you just hope and pray that the majority remembers something about God, and when the majority doesn't, then your society begins to unravel. But even then, we don't despair, because God is good, and he doesn't change. Number two... God's goodness is worthy of approval. God's goodness is worthy of approval. Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
Psalm 119, 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Moving to the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 12, 10. For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. We need to remember here, as we are approving what God does, that God, what God does is good because God does it. And this needs to make us very sober as we think about all the things that God has done and does and will do in his creation. And we need to remember that God exercises certain prerogatives as creator. Uh, For example, God's prerogative to judge wickedness is an expression of his goodness as creator. If I go out and try to judge wickedness and I act according to what I think is good, then I sin because I'm a creature. I'm not a creator. I'm not the creator. Many have stumbled over this aspect of God's goodness. Think about what God has done, particularly in the Old Testament. In Genesis 8 and 9, God judged the world with the flood, wiped out mankind, save one family. That ought to sober us as we think about that. Uh, When Israel came into the land of Canaan, God commanded the extermination of the Canaanites. That ought to sober us as we think about that. He's good. That is good. But it ought to sober us. And there is coming a day when everybody who will not bow the knee to Christ before the judgment is going to go to hell. This is a hard truth, a hard expression of God's goodness. Last week, uh, Steve referenced the new atheists. Uh, These are men like the biologist Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, Uh, Christopher Hitchens, now deceased, who wrote God is Not Great, and I would include Sam Harris in here, uh, The New Atheist. And if you read reviews of these books, like on Amazon, uh, you'll notice that it's often mentioned that they are writing in the tradition of one Bertrand Russell. Dr. Russell was... Uh, a preeminent philosopher in the 20th century. And in 1927, he gave a speech that became a popular book. Uh, The speech was called, Why I Am Not a Christian. And rather than pose all sorts of what he hoped to be airtight arguments for the non-existence of God, Dr. Russell simply went after the moral character of Christ. He knew if he could bring down Christ, then the whole Christian system would come tumbling down. And listen to a paragraph of this book and listen to where he goes and think about how it relates to God's goodness. Then you come to moral questions, he writes. 
There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person that is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment, and one does find it repeatedly a vindictive fury against those who would not listen to his preaching, an attitude which is not uncommon with preachers, but which does somewhat detract from superlative excellence. See, I don't think that that Dr. Russell really had airtight arguments against the existence of God. I think he just didn't like God's goodness. That wasn't the way that he would rule the world if he were God. And that's why he simply didn't want to believe in Christ and the gospel and God. These are sobering things for any thoughtful Christian. And we need to remember that God, in his goodness, is doing 10,000 things in his creation. But we don't see everything that God is doing. We see three or four uh, of these things. And some of these things are not things that we want to approve of at any given moment. But then again, we need to remember that we're not the creator We are creatures, aren't we? Number three, God's goodness is worthy of our imitation in keeping with God's character. God's goodness is worthy of our imitation in keeping with God's character. In other words, we are to do good as we know that God does good. We're to do good as creatures uh, to the degree that God commands us to to do good. Uh, Galatians 6.10 So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then 3 John 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. In other words, we're to do good Because God is good. We've been created as his image bearers and we're to represent his goodness in the world. And those of us who know Christ are being remade as the image bearers of Christ. And we are to do good. But sometimes it's hard to know what good looks like in any given situation. Uh, Author and pastor John Piper brought up four boys. And when they were teenagers, they would come to him and they'd say, Dad, you know, here's a (laughs) bunch of, you know, morally dubious kind of gray area stuff that we want to do, and can we do this stuff? And he would challenge them, well, tell me about this. Why do you want to do this? And we'd say, well, and they'd invariably say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And then he would turn that over and he would tell them, 
What's right about it? Why is this good? And I find that helping about the thinking about the goodness of things that I feel inclined to do, how does this correspond to God's character, it is a very helpful exercise. But it takes sincerity and maturity. Uh, I enjoy watching NFL football. And that has a lot to do with where I grew up and the time that I grew up in. I grew up in Dallas, Texas in the 1970s. And back in the 70s in Dallas, we learned about good and evil by watching football. It was extremely simple. The Cowboys were good, and the Steelers and the Redskins and the Eagles were all bad. It made perfect sense to us. And it was easy to understand why the Cowboys were good. Tom Landry, the man in the hat, he was the coach. He was also on the board of Dallas Seminary. He was a believer. Roger Staubach was this stellar moral character, uh, also a believer. Uh, Howard Hendricks was the team chaplain. And no kidding, he would go into the locker room before games and do inductive Bible study with these guys. What we do here at Faith, inductive Bible study, he had these football players sitting there, what's it say, what's it mean, how does it work, reading the Bible. And he says that one day Staubach said, Hendricks, how is this going to work? we got linemen in here. You can't teach these guys anything. But they did it. They did inductive Bible study. Things have changed a little bit on the team, I've noticed. Uh, this week I noticed that one of our players was arrested for shoplifting. He was stealing underwear. Why does a guy who has a paycheck from Jerry Jones need to steal underwear? It wasn't long ago, one of our better players was uh, cited for violating the sagging code at a local mall. He was wearing his pants too low. And when he was confronted by police, he refused to cooperate until he had called his attorney and discussed the matter, and only then did he pull his pants up to an appropriate place. And that's just the dumb stuff. There's manslaughter charges and multiple cases of assault and battery, and I'm afraid that every team in the league is dealing with these things. So I enjoy watching football. I need to ask myself, how does me patronizing the league and spending any amount of my time, uh, how is this good? Now, there are still stellar characters in the league, guys like John Kitna, I guess he's retired, but Tony Dungy. You know, these are, these are good characters, and it's still a good way for pastors to relax on Sunday night. So I'm not quite convicted yet, but I'm thinking about this, and thoughtful Christian people uh, need to think together about this. Sometimes a good that corresponds to God's character starts out as a good, and then it quits being good. Uh, I married a little bit later than uh, some of you did in life, and so I had about a decade where I had nobody telling me what to do. I, didn't, I wasn't accountable for how I spent my free time, and I spent it pretty well. I, uh, during part of this, this time of life, I taught for a Christian school. I taught Bible and English or a Christian school, and during the day I'd be busy with my students. But then in the evening, 
there'd be nobody to talk to. So I'd go out running. Started out running in the neighborhood, then went running outside the neighborhood, and kind of started running out of town. Think Forrest Gump here. It's getting running further and further. Pretty soon I started running in community races, 5Ks, then 10Ks, then half marathons. Pretty soon I'm competing in multiple marathons. Now, to get ready for a marathon takes about six months. And you have to do long runs on weekends. I did mine on Saturdays. You go out there, crack a dawn, and you have to drive the course. And every few miles, you hide, so some other runner doesn't find it and drink it, your water, along with your cliff bars or your energy bars. So I'm looking for them, hiding things under rocks and behind bridges, and go another few miles, hide some more stuff. Then you come back to the starting place, and you run the distance, anywhere up to 20 miles. It takes a long time to run 20 miles for the average person. Then when you're finished running, you come back, and you have to drive the course again in order to pick up your bottles and any trash that you've left behind. If you start at the crack of dawn, you're not home until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Pretty soon I noticed that I, be, I, was, I was organizing my social calendar around my long runs. And then I started organizing my ministry calendar around my long runs. And one day I completely missed an important opportunity at church on Sunday morning because I was out in some other town doing a race. And I came back and I had missed that opportunity. And I realized that what had started out as a good something that had been a, a, a nice mental release for me and it built up my body and helped me sleep. It had become this self-centered, obsessive discipline that wasn't corresponding to God's character. Sometimes these things take off on us. Number four, God's goodness is learned by experience. God's goodness is learned by experience. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We learn God's goodness through expressions of his grace which is his goodness toward the undeserving. Mercy, which is his goodness toward those who are afflicted. And patience, which is his goodness toward those who who sin over a length of time. You see, God's goodness seems, when we read about it like this, kind of abstract, kind of out there. But in his grace and his mercy and his patience, God's goodness is brought down in our experience into the stuff of life. Uh, The story that I need to tell is a heavy one. 
And I, I, I'll have you know that it's one that my wife has encouraged me to tell so that we don't lose any of the benefit of what we have experienced in thinking about God's goodness. That last verse, or that last pair of verses that I read, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, is a very dear set of verses to me. And in my Bible, there are two dates written next to those verses. July 10th, 2012, and June 13, 2014. And between those two dates, which is about 23 months, Amanda and I learned something about God's goodness that we never would have known had we not had to experience it in our own lives and by uh, experience. Uh, In July of 2012, we were expecting our fourth child. And we, uh, we were delighted, but we grumbled a little bit because we knew of some of the inconveniences ahead, and we assumed that we knew the course. And so we were a little bit, uh, well, we grumbled a little bit about this. Took it for granted. Came time for the 16-week appointment, so we're into the we're into the second trimester, and Amanda went in for a routine heart, heartbeat check. She actually brought the two older children. I had Henry at home. Just a normal morning. You do these appointments all the time. And they hooked her up, and there was no heartbeat. And the doctor blamed the equipment and said, well, it happens sometimes. We'll get you in for an ultrasound. So the afternoon, after a very tense five or six hours, we went in for the ultrasound, and it was immediately confirmed. There was no life in there. Uh, The baby had died. I have lost people in my life before, but something about this loss hit me and us in a very tender place. And I remember telling one of you that, uh, you know, I just, I didn't know I could hurt so badly. Uh, The baby was delivered and in a small family ceremony, just the five of us, we buried the baby in a little plot that you as our church family bought for us. Two things happened in my thinking as a result of that experience. First of all, I praise God. Uh, I've taught through Job. You know, I, I know that in affliction, we grab onto God's sovereignty with one hand and we grab onto his goodness with the others. Think of that picture from the Old Testament, hanging onto the horns of the altar. You know, you just grab on and you hang on. So I praised God. I really, I really did. But the second thing I did was that I began to ask the Lord to redeem this experience with another baby. Not a bad prayer. This prayer, though, became my picture of what God's goodness ought to look like. Lord, would you 
provide us with another child doesn't look likely. Would you provide us with one? And we be- I began to pray for that. And that was my picture. May 2013, some months have gone by, almost a year actually. We're expecting again, we're expecting our fourth child for the second time. And we really rejoice. God is he's, we have what we've been praying, and here he's honoring that prayer. We've praised him, and as a consequence, of course, he is honoring our prayer. We kind of understand how this is working now. We're going to have a fourth child. We come to the 16-week appointment, same appointment, and I'm confident this is what the Lord is doing. Amanda goes in. By yourself this time, heartbeat check, routine thing. Hook her up, no heartbeat. Same outcome, same thing. Schedule for the ultrasound, go in, confirmation, no life inside. This time, I'm angry. I'm angry because I knew what God was doing, right? I had my picture of what his goodness looked like in my life, and it'd all be good, right? We've praised him, right? Even publicly. And my picture of God's goodness has been dashed. About this time last year, we're up to September, October 2013, We're expecting our fourth child for the third time. Oh, this was tense. I don't think we had any time where we relaxed. Maybe a little distraction, but no no rest. And at night when the kids were in bed, we would lie in bed in the dark and just, we would just talk to the Lord. We were way beyond any type of formal, formalized prayer. We would just talk to the Lord like a man talks to his friend. We would tell him, God, we know you are good. Would you share your grace, your mercy with us? And in the process of talking to him over several months we began to realize that we had seized hold of his goodness in a way that did not correspond to who he was. We had our picture of what it ought to look like. And over those months, we began to surrender our picture of God's goodness. Our picture. We told him, Lord, you're good. Even if we don't have another baby, even if this baby dies, you're still good. We surrender this picture that you have, that we have developed. We release it to you. That was a very significant turning of the key for us. June 13, 2014, our fourth living child was born earlier this summer and we named her Greta Grace Greta Grace Grace 
unmerited favor. You see, by releasing our picture of what God's goodness ought to look like, we were able to receive Greta as his very special gift of grace and as an expression of his goodness in a way that we could have never received her before if we had thought of her as some rainbow baby who was supposed to cover over past hurts. But we had to go through that experience. We never would have understood that simply reading words on a page. God's goodness is learned by experience. Last point. God's goodness is desirable and available in Christ. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's goodness is desirable. We have to have it. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And finally, 1 Peter 2 1 through 5. Notice in the first couple of verses how desirable God's goodness is. And then look in the last couple of verses where we access God's goodness. 1 Peter 2, 1, uh, 1 to 5. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We need Christ to show us God's goodness. And we need him like a baby craves milk. Have you ever been around a baby, a nursing baby that wants milk? It's perfectly indecent. The child goes crazy. You can't cover them up. You've got to get them out of the room. They want milk. And that's the way we need to desire Christ who brings us God's Goodness. We find God's goodness by faith in Christ. And our proper response to God in His goodness, as we've seen, is confession of our own need for Him. Perhaps even our, our mental picture of what God's goodness looks like. We need to confess that. And dependence on Him by faith in Christ. Where are you? with respect to God's goodness today. Perhaps you've never tasted it. You maybe believe that God's good, but it's not part of your life because you've never trusted in Christ by faith. And he himself would call you to come to him 
to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's God's goodness. And he was buried and he was raised. He's coming again. And when we believe in him, we trust in him, that he paid that penalty for our sin, then we are his by grace through faith in him. Maybe that's the category you're in. Or perhaps you've trusted him, but you need to rest in him. You need to know his goodness by experience. And then he would have you confess your own picture of his goodness, perhaps, and trust in him again. After our service, one of our elders is going to be in the prayer room in the back. And if the Lord is working in your heart, and something about these passages have stirred you up, and you just want to tell somebody, that would be a great place to go do that. Just go tell somebody what God is doing. Uh, in your life. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I see Brian standing in the back, and that's my cue that uh, we have no time left, perhaps. So uh, and do you want to close this, Brian? Your call. Sure. Okay. Brian's going to come and close this in song. A bit of an audible there. In fact, I will. while Brian's getting set up, I will commit our uh, week ahead of us to the Lord, and then Brian will close us in, in uh, song and we'll be dismissed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness that is seen most clearly in your son Jesus who died uh, in our place. And we, we thank you for the way that that you, your goodness is not just out there. You make it tangible in our lives, and we see expressions of this by your grace, by your mercy, by your patience. Help us to walk uh, by your Spirit this week as we live out those good works that you've prepared in advance for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.